I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1. We are entering the annual season where we reflect upon the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. His coming as a genuine human being while remaining fully God. And we're here in the first chapter of Hebrews, but in the last chapter of the book, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know that verse. Well, ironically, one of the central themes of the book of Hebrews is the very fact that Jesus became something that he was not before. Something that he was not yesterday, but he is today. Three times the writer of Hebrews speaks of the Son of God being made perfect. In the book of Hebrews, the one who was not a human being became a human being. He who could not die became subject to death. The one who did not understand experientially what we suffer subjected himself to our temptation so that he knows experientially now how to comfort us as one of us. The one who had never felt what it was like to obey the unseen father as a human being learned obedience, Hebrew says, through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And ultimately, Jesus became our high priest when before his coming, he was not able to represent us. And I could go on. So while it is true that in his essence, Jesus always was and is and always will be who he is as God, there are multiple ways that Jesus has become something that he was not before. And it is that change in him that we celebrate in the Christmas season. Because when we behold this human child, the Son of God in the manger, we're reminded that God has been faithful to every promise that this child represents. I want to encourage that celebration through our Sunday morning worship by reflecting upon what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus Christ becoming a human being. This book is arguably the fullest declaration of the significance of Jesus' coming. So in the Lord's days leading up to Christmas and on into New Year's, I'd like to ask you to meditate with me on these opening chapters of Hebrews. We're going to take two Sundays and look really at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Then we're going to skip the rest of chapter 1, maybe come back to it some other day, and, and give our attention to then, uh, then to most of chapter 2. So let's begin this morning reading the first verses of Hebrews in chapter 1, which says this, Long ago and many times, And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In the United States, we boast one of the most complex and full judicial systems on the planet. 
by design, our judicial system is intended to give the defendants a, a neutral hearing, blind justice, as we say. It's not a perfect system. I don't think there is a perfect human system. But when it's functioning well without political bias, it provides the justice that we need in, in, the, in the culture, in the society. Now, typically these days, news outlets will give attention to certain court cases that may help advance a political narrative. And these news celebrities will play out the courtroom drama in the media where they and their pundits and people on the streets and, of course, famous actors and musicians and other comedians and entertainers who, for some invisible reason, think that their opinion especially is important, will act as the judge and the jury and the executioner in these cases. And we've seen that very dynamic over the past couple of weeks with respect to the Rittenhouse and the Aubrey trials. In the one case, there were loud voices of disagreement with the judge's verdict. And in the other case, the public was in agreement that justice had been served. But the thing is, it doesn't really matter what people think in the news media and on the streets and in the social media. What matters in our judicial system is what the court decides. That word is final. So if you do not feel that you receive justice in a lower court, you can appeal to a higher court. You can ask to have your case heard in the state court of appeals. And if you don't believe you got justice there, you can appeal to the state Supreme Court. And if the case is a federal kind of case, you can appeal to the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. And the idea of the Supreme Court is to give the final word on a judicial matter. In other words, once the Supreme Court has ruled, there is no higher justice in the United States of America to which you can appeal. That word is final. But there's another final word in our judicial system. It occurs when an attorney wraps up his or her case. The prosecuting attorney, for instance, presents all of the evidence and calls all of the witnesses and while making all the arguments to show unmistakably and beyond reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty, once all of the evidence has been presented and all of the witnesses have been called and all of the arguments have been made, the prosecution what? It rests. It sits down. And at this point, the prosecuting attorney is in essence saying, we have presented everything that's needed. We've made all our arguments. This is the final word, and they rest. These two examples of a final word epitomize what is going on in this text. The writer says that though God spoke at many times, referring to the past in verse 1, he has now spoken in these last days, verse 2. And he says that though God spoke in many ways, verse 1, he now has spoken only in one way. The fact that God has spoken in one way is not directly stated, but it is strongly implied because in verse 1, God spoke by the prophets, literally by means of the prophets or through the prophets. But in verse 2, notice, God has now spoken literally, it says, by Son. That is, through Son, through His Son, the Lord Jesus. So you can see the contrast in these opening two verses of Hebrews between many times in the past and these last days, between many ways and one way, between many prophets and a single Son. And here's what is crucial. 
The fact that God has spoken by his son does not mean that Jesus is merely one other way that God is speaking to the world after a long train of impressive voices. Jesus is not a word from God. He is the word from God. He is the final word from God. I know that it's become popular to speak of the last days as the, as the end of the age, you know, the, the, the days when Christ is going to return. And, and sometimes people will say, I'll, I'll hear them say, you know, it's getting, it's getting worse out there. We must be living in the last days. But if we're going to use the language of Scripture, we do not speak of the last days as if they are to come. Yes, there are final things that happen in the last days, but we were all born and are already living in the last days. The author of Hebrews was living in the last days. He refers to them here as the final days. The last days are the final days during which Jesus Christ is the final answer to everything. He is the last word. Therefore, we are living in the last days because in context... For centuries, God had spoken to his people through his chosen men who told of a salvation to come. And we could list many of them this morning. Moses uh, talked about the, the tabernacle that God had instructed him to build and later the temple with specific features and specific sacrifices which foretold of an ultimate sacrifice to come. And through his prophet Samuel, God shared his desire for a king after his own heart to lead his people. In Isaiah, we learn of this great ruler who would be born to a virgin, who would become a suffering servant. In Jeremiah, we're told to look for a branch of righteousness from David's line. In Ezekiel, we're told that a great shepherd will come to gather his flock and lead them. And the prophet Joel promised that God would unite his people and dwell with them. And Zechariah said that the office of king and priest, which was not supposed to ever come together, ask Azariah, or he's called Uzziah in Isaiah 6, who was struck with leprosy because he tries to force his way into the temple and altar on, the, on their altar of sacrifice. You never are to bring the office of priest and king together. And yet Zechariah prophesied that the office of priest and king would come together in a single person. Though multiple men in a great variety of voices spoke in the past, God spoke through them. Now that time has culminated because Jesus has come. He is the one who embodies the fulfillment of all that God the Father promised. Hebrews explains to us in detail how Christ is the final and ultimate sacrifice, an ultimate high priest, the final and ultimate ruler. Jesus is called, Hebrews 13, 20, the great shepherd of the sheep. There is no promise that God has made through the prophets of old that is not fulfilled in Jesus Christ unless it's about to be fulfilled in the time to come in Jesus. So again, I say, Jesus is not simply one another way. He's not just a long, he want one voice in a long list of voices. He's the final word. Now we have everything we need in him. Just like the final decision of a Supreme Court, Jesus is God's ultimate and authoritative word. Just like the prima facie case of the prosecuting attorney, Jesus embodies all that needs to be said. And the exaltation of Jesus as God's final word bleeds through this letter to the Hebrews. In fact, consider one example this morning. 
I love this passage. This, this great statement from chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I think the temple is still uh, not destroyed at the time Hebrews is written. And, and the author is referring to what he knows is going on in the Jerusalem temple day after day after day never taking away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because he was finished, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's a comparison between many priests and many sacrifices, all of them foreshadowing something greater to come. And one priest with one sacrifice forever, after which he sat down, he rested his case. Nothing more to say, nothing more to do. And in in, in true Christianity, if you're going to describe it the way the Bible describes it, there's nothing more for us to do. We rest in what Christ has done for us. He is the final word. He is the final verdict. And and praise God, the final verdict for our lives is not guilty because Christ paid our penalty. It's a marvelous thing. At the beginning of the Bible, the first action we see on the part of God is the speaking of all creation into existence and infusing it with life. And at the beginning of Hebrews, again, the first action here we see in this passage on the part of God is his speaking, only this time the message itself is Jesus Christ who infuses life in those who believe in him, eternal life. So let's look carefully at this text together this morning. I want you to notice up until the middle of verse 2, the subject of the opening sentence to the Hebrews has been God the Father because he has spoken, so he's the subject. But as soon as the author mentions the son, do you see that? All the focus shifts to him. And the rest of the sentence exalts Jesus Christ, the son who came for us. He has spoken to us by his son. And then it says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world and so forth. All the way into verse four, where he is superior to the angels and is exhibited because he inherited a more excellent name. This is an excellent reminder for us right away because there are so many ways that what is going on in the world, and you know this already, so many ways that what is going on in the world can take our eyes off of Christ, can can shift our focus. Political circus, coronavirus variants, international tensions, then the seasonal commercial distractions of the holidays, right? The buying, the selling, the sights, the sounds, the shows, the busyness of preparing for and attending all of those events. And then the normal weight of family and work and school life, we all experience it. We can actually focus so much on the things we do to celebrate the coming of Jesus that we don't have time to appreciate Jesus himself. A study of the letter of Hebrews is a wonderful remedy 
for this malady because it, it rivets our attention on Christ. In fact, I, w- I would just challenge you, if you don't have a regular Bible reading plan, take Hebrews and just read through it every week during the Christmas season. It will really ramp up your celebration of what Christ has done for us and who he is. So how do these verses portray Jesus as the final word, the ultimate word from God? In verses two through three, I want you to notice we have seven truth claims made about the son, seven assertions about who he is. I'm gonna lift them out of the text for us here so that you can see them in order. It says in the text, whom he has appointed heir of all things, that's one, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, so that's another thing he did, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of those refer to Jesus Christ. This is what he did. This is who he is. This is the final word. Now, I would mention verse four, which includes two more statements. The first of which actually summarizes these seven statements. And the second leads us to the rest of chapter one. So I'm not going to mention those in particular. We're just going to focus our attention for these two sermons on the statements that you see here. Now, statements one through seven, one and seven, uh, I want you to notice these together. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, and then notice he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Both of these statements have to do with the exaltation of Jesus Christ or with his enthronement in the heavens, his cosmic rule, his kingship over all things. Notice he becomes the heir or the rightful owner of all things. And he is sitting down. He's sitting on his throne. In fact, this is based on Psalm 110, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, Hebrews arguably is actually a sermon with Psalm 110 as a lot of its text. The footstool is the place where a king's feet rest when he is sitting on his throne. Here he's reigning as king. This is Jesus' status as the high king over the church, and over the world. And this is the idea of the first and last phrases of this uh, list of phrases that we see in the text. And we'll give attention to the status of the Lord Jesus when we come back to the text next week. I want you to notice now verses, I'm sorry, statements number two, five, and six. This is telling us what Jesus does. Notice he creates through whom he also created the world. And he sustains, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then it says, he purges our sins. This is Jesus's activity. And these phrases speak of the activity or the work of Jesus Christ. And also we will come back to this next Lord's Day. And we'll take those those phrases next week. This morning, I'm going to wrap up by simply noticing these two phrases in the very center of, sandwiched between the other five. Numbers three and four, the ESV has it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. These phrases do not directly speak of the royalty status of the son. They don't directly speak of the work or the activity of the son. These speak of the essence of the son. They come to the heart of who Jesus, the son, is. Now, notice these phrases appear at the heart 
of this progression of ideas about the Son. And this is no accident on the part of the author. What you're seeing here is a litany of ideas, but there's a structure to it that was common in those days where an author would express an idea, then a different idea until he finally came to the the biggest idea and then he would work backwards to the first idea. He would repeat the ideas in reverse order. So we see in verses two through three, the status of the son, the work of the son and the essence of the son. And again, then we see the essence of the son in the next phrase, then the work of the son and finally the status of the son. But we Westerners don't think like that. That just confuses us. So I've mercifully put this in a Western outline and we're just gonna look at the middle two and work our way to the end backwards and forwards. So uh, this morning, we are going to begin by looking at Jesus's essence. He's the final word from God where it says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. Here we discover the essence of the son, who he is, what it is about him that distinguishes him from all others. First of all, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Let's take that phrase for just a few minutes here. The radiance of the glory of God. What glory? Well, how would a a Jew living in the first century think when you talked about the glory of God? This Jewish person would think of the Shekinah glory of God of the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament, the cloud of glory that filled the space with God's presence that made Moses had to run, have to run out of the way and, and, and caused the, the priests in Solomon's time to not be able to enter the temple. God had instructed his people to build for him a place to dwell and he would come into their very midst. He would come among them. And when the tabernacle was finally completed, the glory of God, the shining, brilliant cloud came into the uh, uninhabited temple and, and came and filled it. In the minds of God's people, God himself was actually coming to dwell among them. In short, the glory was always shining. It was a visible presence of God among his people. That's what they thought of when you talked about the glory of God. Now, notice that Jesus is called here the radiance of God's glory. It's a word that can mean effulgence or a shining forth. Now, Jesus makes several comparisons between himself and the Father in which he indicates he has come to show the Father to the world. I think you're familiar with some of these. John 1.18, I think, is most striking. In his prologue, he says, no one has seen God at any time the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has declared him. But Jesus, in his own words, told people, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip says to him in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And and Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you have not seen me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because when Jesus arrived, visible was the Godhead in him. In fact, as some of you know, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us 
and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelled among us, some of you know, that word actually means to tent, to tabernacle. It's a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle. Jesus Christ came, the, the glory of God, and dwelled among us. Now, this is most important. We are tempted to think of the radiance of Jesus Christ as it reflects the Father's glory. In fact, some of you may have even have heard an illustration that just as the moon reflects the glory of the sun, Jesus Christ is reflecting the Father's glory to us so that we can see the Father. But that's not what John's gospel is saying, and that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's not merely reflecting the glory. He is talking about the brilliance of light coming from the source of light. Not looking at the reflection of the sun, but looking at the sun itself. Jesus radiates glory because he is the source of glory. And what we have here, therefore, is a statement that is intense and unmistakably that Jesus is God himself, that the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are one and the same glory. And that is the essence of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He is God himself come to save us. He is truly Emmanuel, Emmanuel, with us, God come to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's something to celebrate. There's a second phrase, however, which expresses the essence of Christ and points to his deity. The King James has it this way, the express image of his, that's the Father's person. The NIV says the exact representation of his being. The, the translators are struggling a little bit to figure out how to flesh this out in, in the English language. The NASB says the exact representation of his nature. But here in the ESV, it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. What is an imprint? An imprint in the ancient world was a stamp or an engraving or an impress. It was the word used when you talked about making coins. Uh, Coin making or minting was a process of heating the metal until it was soft. And then the image was Uh, put onto the coin. It was impressed on the coin through an iron stamp. And the process was called striking. You can Google images of this and watch it happen, not while I'm preaching, but uh, you can can see them put the iron stamp on this molten coin and they strike it uh, on on top of the the iron stamp. And it, it makes that impression in the metal. And the image from the iron stamp would be left word for word image for image upon the coin. The idea of an imprint then is the idea of a correspondence. So the sun is the exact imprint. The exact imprint of what? Well, it says here he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Or he's the exact imprint of his person. Some people have it, uh, some translations have it, he's the exact imprint of his being. And I'll tell you what word this is. It's already on the, the screen there. It's actually the word hypostasis. Hypostasis. You know the doctrine of Jesus Christ being 100% God and 100% man at the same time? 
and the name for that doctrinal teaching is called the hypostatic union. Some of you know that phrase, and you might even shown off with people, like, uh, hey, let's talk about the hypostatic union, just to say, ha ha, let's talk about a theological conversation. But sometimes they take you up on it, and then you're like, uh-oh, now I have to talk about it. And you're like, uh, what am I going to say about this now? We have the two natures of Jesus Christ, his Godhead and his humanity in one person. It's a mystery. How can that work? We don't have any way of explaining it. It's called the hypostatic union, but it's from this word hypostasis. You know what it means? Literally, it means to stand under. Hupa, under, and stasis, to stand. Apparently, the word was originally used to speak about the sediment that collects at the bottom of a liquid. For instance, the sediment at the bottom of your coffee cup, if you let the grounds go through, if you make really good coffee and that's that silting there, the Greeks would call that hypostasis. Now, Uh, later on they would because coffee hadn't been invented uh, in the first century, but it's the same kind of thing. They would have seen it in juices. If you go to the store and you buy really good orange juice, you look at the bottom, you see the little pulp. That's my favorite kind. You're really getting into the orange if you have that kind of orange juice. That's called hypostasis. I want you to remember that when you go to the grocery store now and you you pick out that orange juice. That's hypostasis down there at the bottom. That's the real thing itself. It's not just the juice of the orange, it is the orange itself. And the Greeks would refer to that with this word hypostasis. It's substance. It's what really matters. So what the author is saying is striking in its implication. Because when it comes to God the Father, the scriptures are clear in many places that he is the invisible God. In fact, he is the invisible, unapproachable God in 1 Timothy 6, dwelling in light that no one can come near whom no one has seen or can see, which means that if we are to behold him, we have to see him in some other way. But we see him perfectly in Jesus Christ. He is the image, the exact replication of the the invisibility of the Godhead. The son, the author of Hebrews says, is the very stamp of, of the substance or reality of God. In other words, when we are looking at him, we are looking at him who is invisible. These two phrases taken together, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, are the two most, or one of the two most undeniable ways, I think, that the New Testament equates Jesus with God himself, that they are both equally, God the Father and God the Son, God Jesus is the glory of God and he is the image of God. And these things pertain to his essence. This is one phenomenal Christological truth. It is one of the central themes of Hebrews and why Jesus is essentially, that is in his essence, the final word from God. For after God has spoken with himself, what other expression can possibly be imagined. Jesus is the final word, the ultimate word. And I wonder this morning if we are living our lives as if Jesus is that final word. Is he our center of focus? Will he be our center of focus this Christmas? The one person who really does matter most and we act like it. What needs to be arranged in our priorities in order for him to be at the forefront of our thinking? What lesser loves need to be set aside or de-emphasized 
in our lives so that we can make room for and devote more time to seeking him through the word and through prayer? What thoughts or words or actions must we confess to God and change in order that we might become more obedient to the will of Christ? The final word. I'm praying that the Lord through his spirit will give us that grace to honor him with our lives and that we would advance in that honor and in that devotion to Jesus Christ. He is most deserving He is our only hope. He is this final word from God. Father, thank you.